just reading it, I just don't understand it. What, I don't know how he could be guilty of anything yet. If the guy became entangled and died <laughs> from embolism, what the hell has that got to do with the other guy? Oh, Recorded live. Hi, Dave. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Obsessed episode 217, 217 is recorded live October 23rd, 2014. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the west side of Michigan, where we are still diving in water that is not hard. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very good. I'm just chomping at the bit to get into the uh, new stuff. <laughs> As we could tell, if you happen to listen to the pre-show, we, we had to calm them down so that we could uh, have it all for the for when we were recording. Also joining us this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm great. I'm just chomping at the bit to skip the news and talk about diving. Yeah, I, I think that works out better. It's the the news is either torture or education. I can't I can't decide which. Maybe a little of both. A little of both. But luckily for us, the article that Mac was so anxious to get to is the first one up. This one is out of, it says it's out of Southern California, but it's, it's, that's the, the newspaper or the, uh, I think it's a TV station, NBC man sentenced to four years and drowning death of diving partner, Craig Lightninger provided faulty equipment and failed to teach the victim how to use it before his death off Catalina Island. I guess that's actually California, isn't it? A man who provided unsafe equipment and failed to train his scuba diving partner prior to the dive off the coast of Catalina Island, Island last year was sentenced to four years in state prison this Monday. Craig Leitner, 50 of San Pedro, pleaded guilty in July to one count of involuntary manslaughter to death of 47-year-old Mark Rayscon. The two were visiting the island to capture blue-banded goby fish, which is illegal. Uh, the, the event that happened after that was they became entangled in kelp, Instead of helping helping him, uh, Lightninger called the Coast Guard to report a missing diver. This is according to Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Rascon was found dead in 80 feet of water. He drowned as a result of an embolism. Lightninger, who supplied the air hose and breathing regulators for two men used to the dive, was arrested two months later. He's expected to be back in a court for a restitution hearing in December. And there's like, as you pointed out before the show, Mac, there is absolutely no details in this article. Well, you know, provided unsafe doesn't say a thing about the equipment failure, said failed to train his scuba diving partner. Does that mean the guy was uncertified and the guy took him down on his gear? That's what you, I'm making an assumption. That must be what it is. Well, that's what the assumption is. But the one thing they don't tell you was Leitner certified. That's also true. Yeah. I mean, because what I'm betting is the two, I mean, they were doing something illegal. Uh, they they got some gear somehow, some way. They went diving and one of them died, which you know, can be expected if you're not properly trained and familiar with the conditions, but they don't tell you anything. They don't tell you if either of them were experienced divers, how many times they had dived, uh, you know, cause this could just be a plea bargain arrangement with the County. Yeah. If, if the guy took his gear, loaned it to a buddy and took him out, 
then he's got a lot of responsibility. But the way I'm reading it, it doesn't have the details, so it's hard to really say. Yeah. And I mean, you say lightly or kelp lightly became entangled in his breathing apparatus. What does that mean? And again, if you really can't help the guy, you know, instead of helping him, he called the Coast Guard, which means then he went to the surface, got on a phone and called. Right. It, it's like, I'd love to see the details. Well, and then the thing is, they, they must have had an autopsy and he had an embolism. Would you have an embolism if you got caught in kelp? And if you drowned, you wouldn't. Right. Embolism sounds to me like he came up and he held his breath. Yeah. He, he may have wanted to have some little bit better representation than it appears he had. Yeah, or a better reporter next time to give us, how how'd Joe Friday say it? Just the facts, man. Yeah. <laughs> Just the facts. And then in our continuation of our uplifting news, four divers are charged with raiding an ancient shipwreck in Finland. The Southern Finland District Prosecutor has pressed charges against four men allegedly stealing from a shipwreck protected by antiquity laws. The raid took place in 2011. The district prose- prosecutor said that the four Finnish men were not remanded into custody once charges were laid. However, the prosecutor remained tight-lipped about where the men were believed to have taken what they were have taken from the sunken vessel. The case came to light following requests for criminal investigation by National Board of Antiquities. The curator described the wreck as being located in open sea Porvo, about 130 feet below the surface. The wreck had been discovered by the Finnish Maritime Administration in 2004. It was a wooden ship about 26 meters or 85 feet long and 7 meters, 23 feet wide. ship had laid in the ocean floor for 100 years, once supported three masts, and was believed to be carrying a cargo of hemp when it sank. Museum curator said the vessel was a topical, a typical shipwreck in the sense that there's no precise information about its age, when it went down, or its origin. It could have been from the 1700s or 1800s, she speculated. According to antiquity laws, all ships or shipwrecks are considered property of the state if their owners are not known and if they've been lying underwater for more than a century. Which means if somebody goes out and takes something from something they don't know how old it is or of its value, they're in trouble because the state in its almighty grasp says, hey, it's mine. Yeah. Okay, about right. Yeah. Well, but you notice how, many, how, how much we don't have details in this one either? Yeah. Like, why did it take so many years? Did they really have a good case? And I'd love now to know what the hell they took. Well, what's the, is there another agenda for? I wonder if it was beer. It? A beer? But it was I wonder hemp. if it was beer. It was hemp. Maybe they were just drying it out. Well, okay. I can, well, that's legal there, though, isn't it? I don't know. In Finland, well, that's I, Amsterdam. I keep forgetting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder I if it was, was still Hagen beer. Yeah. The only other item I found odd is this is from the Alaska Dispatch. <laughs> yeah. But if you notice, the, the story is posted on the Dispatch as part of the Eye on Arctic collaboration partnership between public and private circumpolar media organizations. Where do you see that? <laughs> That's at the bottom. <laughs> so what that means is that it's it's like their, their form of AP, I guess. Yeah, they must have been slowing the news thing in Alaska that day. Yeah. And then for now, something of scientific relevance, scientists have worked hard to recreate a 172-year-old shipwrecked beer. If you remember, and I think we covered it, three years ago, the oldest batch of still drinkable beer was discovered off the coast of Finland, and it contained living bacteria. <clears throat> Scientists analyzed the bacteria successfully recreate the beer, which they are now selling locally. I think it was those two guys we just talked about. Yeah. You know, that could be it. Oh. If they drank the evidence, that's the best way to do it, though, you know. So they took it all. That, that could be. So it says back in 2010, five bottles of beer, 168 bottles of champagne were found in a submerged schooner in the Aland Islands off the coast of Finland. 
The shipwreck is believed to have been down there since 1842, and Discovery remains one of the oldest batch of still-drinkable beer. The staff at the Aland-based brewery called Stahlhaven are figuring out how to create this ancient beer by studying the bacteria it contains. Beer manufacturers were able to tinker with the flavor of beer by experimenting with different yeast cultures. Part of the process where new taste profiles are created rests in the way the yeast is turned to sugar. This is according to Tim Sandel at Digital Journal. Certain bacteria can also play a role in this process. And combinations of different bacteria with yeast can also influence the taste, smell, and body of the beer. Teeing up the researchers at the VTT Technical Research Center in Finland and the KU Levin Brewing Technology Research Group in Belgium, the, the staff were able to isolate the 172-year-old lactic acid bacteria from the shipwreck beer bottles. Amazingly, the bacteria were still alive. The team suggested chilly water at a depth of 50 meters below the surface basically froze the beer with barely any light penetrating the water down that far. The ship acted like the perfect storage unit. After several years of analyzing the chemical makeup of the beer, the team just announced that they successfully recreated the beer. You know, the more I'm thinking about it, you may be right. Somebody in the administration got a little upset because somebody didn't file the correct paperwork. I think you're just trying to extort some beer. You see the last line of that article? I like the first part. We're not sure whether we want to try 172-year-old shipwreck beer. Yeah. Or the space whiskey. What's space whiskey? That must be another that one. I don't know. I mean, I know what happens when you try that unopened thing of Bailey that's been down there a couple of years. <laughs> you sure as hell don't want to drink that. <laughs> that was. That sounds like that would have been an episode of Fear Factor. Yeah. The team says the beer will be in the market sometime next year with a hefty price of 113 euros per bottle of the premium stuff. A more affordable replica is selling around 6 euros in Finland. They're now working on con- conducting a complete genetic analysis of the bacteria to figure out how long it survived so long and exactly what the species belongs to. Now, hefty price, that's for the original beer, correct? No, for premium? I don't know why they say premium. <laughs> well, I mean, $165 for beer? So that's what I'm curious. Is that the original stuff they're talking about? I don't about? think so. I think that would be uh, more. I doubt it. Well, yeah, they say a replica is selling that. So one must be original, the other is a replica, so... Which one's the original? The 176 year old or 172? No, the hefty price tag per bottle for the premium stuff, the more affordable. Oh, maybe it is. So maybe they're they're selling the originals. How many? Are they... Are you ever going to pay 165 for a bottle of beer? It's then there's five bottles. How much can they have left? They found five. They probably had to lo- use at least one or two for the testing, and it doesn't seem like much if you know for a rare beer. I was think my impression was that they had some process that was very slow. And that was that the premium. Means, uh, keep the beer in your refrigerator with the light off. It should be fine for a hundred years or so. You shouldn't have skunky beer, right? Yeah. Uh, just you, you, well, first you gotta get your refrigerator, put it down to 150 feet. Keep it pressurized. Yeah. What was what would beer have been in bottles? Would it have been bottles? What kind? How, what kind of caps? I bet they weren't uh, steel or aluminum. No. <laughs> well, because I, I'm thinking. You know, would it have been like a crock? I think this whole thing's a crock. <laughs> yeah, you look at the picture. Well, that's the, it's a marketing piece. Is that representative of what they had, though? Cork? Yeah, it could be. I mean, that's a champagne style. So maybe that's what they did in beer back then. Well, we know what they did with our beers, cork. Did they like that? Would it have been like that? Well, I'm, well that's that's a different kind of cork there. That's like, like you said, champagne one. Well, we know it wasn't a metal cap. Yeah, yeah, it would have been gone a long time ago then. But you would think even if it was wire-strapped like that, unless the cork had enough force to keep it from working out. Well, you had the pressure of the water around it, keeping that cork in there. Yeah, that because the wire would have come out. 
Interesting. And then here we have an incredible underwater sculpture. And this photo that they're showing in there must be one that was just recently put down there. Graham well, Hancock specialized in discovering and exploring underwater cities. Uh, <coughs> and he's wondering what future generations will think when they discover Ocean Atlantis, a massive 60-ton statue of a girl beneath the surface of the ocean off the coast of Nassau in the Bahamas. Uh, Taylor's sculpture is not just about making interesting tourist attraction for scuba divers to photograph. It was made using a special pH-neutral cement that will allow for reef organisms to thrive on the surface. So this uh, Taylor, he, he's the one who's been doing these sculptures all over the world that end up going in the water. Well, I'm looking at that, and that looks pretty freaking shallow. I think the first hurricane's going to knock her down on her back. Well, that's kind of why she's hunching over. What is that? No, going all she's hunching over because she's got the weight of the world's oceans on her shoulders. I, I don't know what that rope is, Mac. Is that a, a buoy, maybe? It, didn't look, it looks straight up, too straight to be oscillating in the water thing. I mean, you think it's like a post or something? Yeah, doesn't it? Or maybe this was as they were setting it. it she or looks a buoy. You said a buoy to go down and now you know where it's at. Yeah, I mean, that's that was and what my been, thought was, is that they're, because like you said, she's not that deep. Yeah. But cool. It's a little Rubenesque, right? Well, compared to Hollywood, I didn't, yeah. Well, 60 tons, so that's Rubenesque. <laughs> yeah, weighs more than most people I know. I think she weighs more than anybody I know. You figured a couple of dozen years ago, that's going to be all coralized, right? Yeah. That's what they hope. We can loan them some zebras and quaggas. Yeah, we can donate some. You know, I wonder if they, they thought about the poor little uh, lionfish. Where are they going to go? Back to that Catalina story? <laughs> yeah. It said goby, didn't it? Yeah. I have to look that up and see if that's a saltwater goby or a like ours. I mean, would our, would our gobies survive in... Well, I'm just wondering if there's any correlation between that kind of goby and the gobies we have. Yeah. Okay, before we get in this next article, which is in the state news, which is a Michigan State University paper, the ad on the right side is for the University of Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's something wrong with that. They expect my screen to crack. But uh, the article is a bi-yearly cleanup of Red Cedar Reveals Bikes and More. Members of the Fishery and Wildlife Club woke up this last Sunday to help clean the Red Cedar River, which is an emblematic feature on the MSU campus using different mechanisms to clean. While some students paddle the canoes to get trash, others help scuba divers pull the trash from the bottom of the river. Quick question for you. Yep. Uh, emblematic? What the heck does that mean? Because I don't know. Representative? Representative? Yeah, wouldn't you say emblematic feature? Representative feature. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Representative, uh, uh, an emblem, uh, kind of, uh, I said representative, but it's it kind of almost like a trademark or something, you know, something that like defines the university. Winning football team is good. Yeah. Unlike some others nearby. Yeah, you know, I've been on the campus many, many times. And I've really never considered the Red Cedar River. <laughs> in fact, I'm not even sure I knew what the name of it was. Uh, besides bicycles. Have, go ahead. I didn't know they had a river going through it. I think, to me, it was more of a creek. But it seems like every Michigan campus has to have some sort of river. Well, they say like they say Michigan State's a great party school. So mm -hmm. maybe after one of those big parties, the uh, river runs a little faster. Yeah. All yeah. that uh, oh. beer recycling. He said, besides bicycles, volunteers participating in cleaning up found street signs, trash bins, tires, and parking meters. All the materials collected would be sent to the Surplus Store and Recycling Center, making the cleanup a zero-waste effort. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cleanup organizers, fisheries, and wildlife management senior Anthony Beal said the cleanup helps beautify MSU campus, too. 
It's pretty important, not because it only helps enhances our campus image, but also influences what we're here, what we have out here. It's very important to have something that we're proud of on our campus. The Fisheries and Wildlife Club participates every semester in the river cleanup. This is her. This is the seventh cleanup uh, since the club president uh, has been a member as a Fisheries and Wildlife. So much major. to get out of school in four years, right? Well, it's per semester. It's, <laughs> it's Michigan a trimester school. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Well, no, nobody gets out in four years anymore. And how many did they say she was there for? She was there for seven semesters. Okay. It must have a doctor, huh? Seven semesters, well. Yeah, not, like not years. Two or three years. Uh, other organizations on campus gave support to events such as the MSU Scuba Club. Scuba divers, we can't dive unless we have a nice, clean environment. So anything we can do to help out right in here on campus, we do. I bet you they don't. They they normally would not be allowed to be in that river. So it's probably a good excuse. I don't know. Why not? Come on. I mean, don't all the big cities have all these wacky laws keep you out of the water? That's, okay, that's true. I reckon. Yeah, because I mean that's Lansing. You know that Detroit does. Yeah, we can't dive unless we have a nice, clean environment, though. Yeah, I mean Grand Rapids he's does. Us, he's never going to get wet. Yep. Uh, and they go and talk about other things that are polluting the water. I want to see. Uh, did, let's see. The, how, what do these these photo galleries look like? Do they have anything good in there? No, I yeah, same stuff right. on the left side. Nothing really worth interesting. Yeah, it seems like most of the people are in high waders. I saw that. It's like that second photo shows uh, like somebody in a scuba pro wetsuit. Yeah. All I know is that those those suits look really clean and pristine. Don't That's they? what I was thinking. It's like my look. My wetsuit doesn't look like that. I was looking at his gloves. I don't see any uh, super goop or anything on his fingers. No, so. no they need a no. few. But it's nice they got out there and got that done. Yeah, that's good. And it shows that they're doing a little bit of river work. Yeah. You know, a lot of these, these uh, you talk to some of the university and college clubs about diving, and it's a vacation club more than a dive club. They're, uh, they, they use as a pretext to get to go to a southern location. Works for me. <laughs> Then here we have this, uh, I think it's a University of Connecticut professor, discovers a 17th century shipwreck. It's a Dutch ship, Husty Kroenling. Sounds like you're clearing your voice. Uh, was thought to go to her watery grave on March 3rd, 1677. Uh, she was found in the past summers in the waters off the southern Caribbean. Did they show any pictures? Or is this, is this just like a rubble wreck? They go on and on It's and a ru- on. It's a rubble wreck. Yeah. Yeah, and shallows like that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they show them, like, with tape measures, and all I see is rocks. But they got cannons on her, baby. There you go. Those are good things you clean up and put in your museum. Well, did you see that uh, one of the other projects this guy did? He was one of the leading experts on the Swedish warship Vasa. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's an expensive project. Yeah. But they've got public support to keep that one up. Yeah. Yeah, I hope they never turn the atmospheric systems off that, or they'll have a, a pile of toothpicks. Yeah. And then uh, here's another one, this one off the East Coast. And the next three articles are all related, so we can pick and choose from them. 700 feet of water is not going to be visited too often by guys. You don't, you don't think that's a, lo- a looting risk? Is that how they, how deep that ended up being? 100 yeah. feet. 700, 700 feet, two ships side by side. Wow. The sub and the, the ship it sunk. So so we're not going to have the uh, the same divers who, who did the other submarine. I'd like to have seen some good sonar shots of it. The picture they've got there is just representative. It's not the location we're looking for. Yeah, they're afraid people might be able to figure something out from the real one. So what they did is they discovered a submarine and right next to it, a shipwreck. In uh, July 1942, the U-576 and the freighter Bluefins from Nicaragua were both lost at sea during a battle. 
that started with a group of 19 merchant ships were on their way to, to deliver cargo to, from Virginia to Key West, Florida. As part of the war effort, discovers these two sunken vessels from back in August as a result of a 2008 partnership between NOAA and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to survey and document vessels lost during World War II off the North Carolina coast. Uh, Bluefields did not suffer any casualty during the sinking, but souls were still on board when the U-576 went down, so it's possible the crew, given the hull the ship is intact, remains inside the wreckage. They said, although they are technically property of the Federal Republic of Germany, formerly known as the German Reich, the U-576 will remain untouched in Northern California off the United States out of respect for those who died with the ship. Well, if the German government owns it, how did they know that? I'm curious, since they're side by side, how they discriminated between the two wrecks. It'd be nice to see their sonar they, shots. They, there were some sonar shots uh, on Facebook earlier today. Of this one? Of the sub, yeah. I saw a couple where, it, I mean, it looked kind of like that sub we see in the museum in Chicago. 505? Yeah, it showed like railing and deck gun, and so it looked pretty clear. But when you said representative, like look at the article on live science. Uh, which is the the next one, two, two World War II battleships. That one has a sonar image, and you can see the rails. So you can click on view full size. It's amazing how when I went back, and my memory of it is clearer than what this picture actually is. Here, I'll paste it to you. Yeah, no, there was a different one that I saw. Let me see if I can find it. That was a NOAA image. Oh, yeah, the, the one on down, all the way at the bottom. Do you scroll down, Don? Uh, as soon as my computer comes back to life, I hate Internet Explorer. Yeah, that's why I use Chrome. Almost as bad as my freaking Sprint phone. Yeah, there's two photos in the this article, and the one on the bottom is a really good one. Uh, Battleship. Oh, the top one's the Bluefields. That's why. Oh, oh, okay. It's the Bluefields here. Oh, this is another one. Oh, my goodness, Mac. The Battleship. Yeah, the top one's the Bluefields. Yeah, go go down a little bit. I mean, yeah, we need that side scan. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just shows the gun in perfect profile, the deck gun. Yeah. Sonar image of the German U-boat U-576. That is, I wonder how fuzzy they had to make it so that we didn't realize how good it really is. Because <laughs> you think of how deep that is, what we could do in Lake Michigan. Oh, yeah. Like I say, deeper than I'm going to dive right now. Yeah. That's probably only a uh, half million dollar side scan they were using. See, somebody who works on that needs to just put one in the back of their car and drive out to Michigan. We'll use it for a summer. Yeah, come right on out. Yeah. Bitch Please do. Please do. Borrowed. We'll find you a place to stay. Yeah, we'll put you up. I hate that term, though. Two World II battleships discovered. Battleships? Well, they yeah. battled each other. Ships that fought. Yeah, that's... Oh, don't even get me started on what the yeah. publishing industry is becoming. <laughs> it's like everybody who can't get a real job becomes a writer for three years until they decide they want to actually eat more than romaine noodles. Well, nice shot. And then what is the one thing that Mac is always complaining about recovered vessels and artifacts? Me? You. I complain? <laughs> I think I've, I've heard a grumble a couple times. They get put in the, the basement of the museums. Yep. So this one I'm out, out of Austin. What's that, Mac? I may comment on them. Comment. Comment. That's it. Comment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The historic LaBelle shipwreck is ready for the Bullock Museum. They, they're claiming it is one of the most historically significant shipwrecks ever found off the Texas coast. After millions, 
That's millions of dollars in years of restoration. It's finally ready to make its splash this weekend at the Bullock, Texas State History Museum. It sank in a storm off uh, the Mandagorda Bay in 1686, effectively ending LaSalle's French exploration here. His Spanish influence came in like a high tide. Thirteen people were lost, and it was the last of LaSalle's three ships carrying Texas history, changing Texas history forever. With the ship gone, the French presence in Texas was lost. This is according to Dr. Jim Brucheth, the man who oversaw the ship salvage in the 1990s. But Spain heard about this and realized they're going to hold on to land they claimed they needed to send people here. And that's what they began to do, began the rich Spanish history Texas now enjoys. Lobao was found with a magnetometer, detected one of the cannons in the 12 feet of water, but it was no easy salvage job. They had zero visibility. We would have been difficult to dive and excavate it, uh, Bruceth recalls. So he built a cofferdam around it, a steel structure that allows you to pump the water out, and then excavate it like it was on dry land. The ship was coated with polyethylene and freeze-dried to wring out the moisture without warping the wood. Now it is in Austin with a its body and 125 artifacts, including cannons. The hull will continue to be restored while it's on display, which is a rare glimpse at museum work. I can guarantee you now, though I can guarantee you nowhere in the United States can you see this right now, probably not in a lifetime. Well, of course, it's in Texas, right? Yeah. That's why you can't find it anywhere else. It's in Texas. (laughs) Well, I think what they're talking about is the restoration. Okay. They're they're ending the restoration. the most historic shipwrecks are maintained in two museums in Sweden and England after 14 years of work and a $10 million project. LaBelle takes its rightful place in a worldwide attraction. We knew I like that the RTO on this. I think they're going to do okay. Well, at least the uh, state of Texas wasn't stupid enough to give it back to the French. That was going to be my other comment. Thank well, you. but was LaSalle a military vessel? Hey. Isn't that what they the, Yeah. Yeah. Just like the, the Griffin, cannons on it. See, that's they, what usually right. gets them is that whole military, which I I don't think that there should be any special rules, especially when we beat you in a war. And save their ass in other ones. Yeah. You don't get it back. It's like, you know, you hit me in the head with a stick and I knock you to the ground. I'm not giving you the stick back. Want to bet? I, I am curious where they got the 10 mil from. A grant. I mean, you look at this museum, it is not a... a uh, of course, I'd also like to know how the money was proportioned salaries restoration building administrative fees yeah marketing if you go to the uh bullock texas state historical that little mm-hmm. highlight one take a look at the boat that's uh that's what we should have been looking at that's pretty nice excuse me yeah well yeah that, that very first uh the, the video i watched the whole video and it is uh they give you some nice shots of it yeah so the 54 foot lebeau they said will be moved this May to the main atrium that was originally designed for the exhibit in mind uh, before the museum even opened in 2001. So they they pretty much built the museum around this shipwreck being uh, placed there. Okay, click on the uh, hang on a second. Click on the where it says um, explore on the artifact gallery. Click on Labella Gex position. That is cool. This sort of reminds me of the David Crockett, the one we've been looking for. Remember we talked about the half horse and uh, how could the other part dragon or something? Take a look at that, and then take a look at the scan under it. Very nice. See, I'm I'm not seeing it. Which one are you talking about? Okay, uh, let me go back here, Matt. I'm okay. I'm on the front page. I'm going back to where we were here. Okay, go up to the top coverage where it says weekend at. Oh, Texas State Historical Museum. Click on that. Weekend at. 
All right. When that comes up. No, but no, I'm, I'm trying. I don't even see that. Is it the related coverage? It's, it's in your first paragraph. Okay. Yeah. Third line. Oh, weekend that. Okay. Click on that. Okay, I'm, I'm clicking. Which is the website's www.thestoryoftexas.com. Right. Then go explore. Just click on explore for a minute, and it'll say artifact gallery. Mm-hmm. See that? Click on explore. Just hold on explore, and it'll open up. Yep. All right. Artifact gallery. Go to Labella Bella Expedition Exhibition. And then just scroll down a few minutes after you see the animals up the top. Not the animals, but they look like a bow spirit, maybe. Take a look at the picture of the boat. That is cool. The one that's in the... Hey, Mac, paste me the link, will you? Yeah. Skype me the link. Yep, I'm going there now. See, I don't see the same things you're seeing. Uh, so the, the shipwreck that's changed history. I'm just in some blog now. Oh, this is not a blog. Yeah. All right, I'm going back out for a second. So if you've got the one that's got the wooden boat on it, right... Hang on, let me follow. Oh, I'm trying to get Jim there. Uh, Darren, I mean. Okay. All right, Darren, are you back to the boat again? The wooden shot, the model? Yeah. All right. So when you go to explore, just putting, don't click on it. Just go to explore. What yep. do you see? It, just the big menu. Interactive okay. Texas map. Uh... Right. Go to the, right there where it says artifact gallery. Mm-hmm. Bring your cursor down. Except it says currently on view, and then right under it is the exhibition. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I did that. I, it comes up, and then I got two figurines there staring me yep. in the face. Right. I scroll down. Yep. Did that. One of the most important shipwreck discoveries. You don't see that. Well, I see that, but a picture of the boat on the left is what we're talking about. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It just looks like a bunch of wood in the sand. Yeah, but it's interesting if you take a look at ours and you take the sand out. That's going to be quite interesting. Oh, yeah. I find Canada on ours. Oh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm ready. Oh, man. Yeah, this is what that reminds me of. Well, it does. Now, yeah. you know, when you say that, it's like if you remove 10 feet of sand from uh, our wreck, yeah, from Max wreck, that is the same wreck. 85 Other feet than, long. I don't see the centerboard keel there. Yeah, but. no. No, similar. Yeah, yeah, it would be similar. I don't know what the depth or the size was. There was that other rack they were talking about that was 85 long. Yeah. Yeah, see, this one, they, they, they it was really the shallow, and they did a coffer dam. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, and you'll see a lot more photos. That's what I was looking for before. Oh, I, Canada. gosh, it's, it's one of the these. You're going to find that's it the on the Yeah. yeah it's, if they can't find it up north, they need a magnetometer. Yeah. Yeah, we, wow. Yeah. Now, I like that cannon. Or nice. Oh, yeah. those pictures were that. Right. I clicked on the second yeah, part. The can. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I like about it is that the, the the one thing is that these are all the artifacts being exhibited. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and, you know, many times they complain because museums, they get them and they don't know what to do with them and they throw them in a basement and we never get to see them. In this case, they actually are exhibiting them. Oh, yeah. There is a nice one there with the dead eyes on the right, uh, the shot, cannon shot, grape mm-hmm. shot, rifles. That's pretty cool. We may have to go down and visit this. Yeah, we may have to do a road trip. See, we'll, we'll help them pay back that $10 million. It's interesting looking at the dead eyes compared to ours. You see the differences? Interesting. Yeah, these are more, they, they remind me more of a coconut, don't they? Yeah, it looks like a coconut aspect. And you see around the bottom, it doesn't look like you've got the uh, groove all the way around on that bottom one to the right. And these are really old because you see the, uh, looks like a wooden dowel through the middle, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this, and you know, they're not using any metal strapping like we have on ours. You know, metal was used very sparingly. be interesting to see if it's got a metal uh, sheave in the block. You'd have to be real careful with those muskets, too. They are fragile. 
Yeah, I mean, just look how much of it's deteriorated, rotted away in the, the butt. Yeah, uh, you'd want to have to pan those clear, that's for sure, and put them in something really, really, really quick. They would go to heck overnight just about. Yeah, they they did it. They uh, This is true. I like, uh, like that barrel. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just incredible. I wonder if the barrel To be able to save true. and restore all this stuff. I wonder if that barrel is true there. If that's you know, a real barrel? Yeah. It, it's fooling me if it's not. Yeah. It sure looks like beautiful archaeology work here. Some good okay. preservation. I keep hearing cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Oh, yeah. We're starting to see the 10 million. Well, mm. now you're talking, when they say save and preserve, this is an example, but it ain't cheap. Yeah. Well, did you see the one photo where they're showing where they're getting the boards back? So they must have completely disassembled it, preserved each board individually. Mm-hmm. And then they're getting ready to reassemble it there in the lobby. Ooh, there's another section. Uh, go to... Let's see, LaBelle, the exhibit. I don't know. I just came across some artifacts that are outstanding, gentlemen. And it also shows them raising the cannon, a very, very good wooden representative of the model of the ship, which is very, very nice. And More than $100 artifacts. And pikes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let me see if I can. I don't know if that'll do. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah if you go to one where you go to the buy the tickets, because I was trying to figure out what the price was. Some of the photos, uh, the, some of the photos there are amazing. They show yeah. the wreck with uh, from a from kind of a side angle yeah. inside the coffer dam. Yeah, there's, yeah there's one here with a photo. Somebody standing next to it. They're yeah, looking exactly. at it from the bow. Yeah, yeah, that's another one. Yeah, yeah this is worth. Yeah. Oh, and there's listen- barrels in there. You so you can see the barrels. Yeah. Anybody listening really needs to click on this one. This is very very nice. Yeah, the www.thestoryoftexas.com. Oh, wow. And then it has the featured artifacts. Is that the ones you were talking about, Jim? Yeah. Excavation and preservation. Uh, Pewter Poringer. Yeah. I'll come back here. Brass candlesticks. I'm going to bookmark this this thing and come back to it. Rulered French itch, inches. Bronze cannon. Okay. Wow. Bookmarked. We'll be back. Texas State History Museum. Yep. Now, Road I'm, trip. Well, I was trying to get to the ticket price. Buy tickets. I, I, buy tickets. I've clicked I mean, the probably- buy ticket button like five times. And I still can't get to buy tickets. Uh, here we go. So <laughs> so there's a exhibit tickets and there's film tickets. Well, the exhibit tickets are $12 for adults, $10 for all you retired guys, $10 for military, $10 for college students, $8 for youth, 4 to 17 A member adult's 12 bucks. Well, that's what you get for being a member, the same price as everybody else. <laughs> well, if nobody got anything else out of the podcast today, this is worth looking at. Yeah, so they got something out of this one for sure. Very nice. It's in Austin. I just got to figure out. Austin, I've, Texas. I've got customers in Austin, so may have to go do a trip. Road trip. That might fly. <laughs> and then we have divers are set to share stories at shipwrecks and scuba event. Can you guess who's going to be there, Jim? Uncle Ralph. <clears throat> yep. Uncle Ralph. Ralph Wilbanks will be there. He's going to I talk about. I'm sorry, Mac. What was that? Clive was on the left. Yeah, they show Clive it's there. That photo, yeah. Uh, but I went through it. I almost didn't talk about. It. Now, which show are they they mentioning? It's one coming up here Sh- real soon. Shipwrecks and scuba, and that's in November. Yeah, November the eighth. That's Salt in Sawmill Creek Lodge in Huron. Shipwrecks and scuba conference. I've, I'm not aware of this one. No. Let's see. There's website shipwrecksandscuba.com. That's where I was headed next. Yeah, I'm not. You know, normally, there's not a fall season. Let me look at the chat room. There's probably people over there screaming at me, telling me all the everything. Hey, Andy. Bay Area divers. 
Bay Area Diver, 70th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. Huron, Ohio. Shipwrecks in scuba. Now, there's the one in Ohio that's in the spring. I wonder if this is just the same show but in the fall or if it's a different one. This is where we need Dave. He knows all that Ohio stuff for us. But uh, Will Banks is going to be there. And I liked, you know, they asked him what he was looking for. And he's still listing the Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. And for those who are listening, that's the, the plane that went down, you know, depending on who you believe, Holland, South Haven, or St. Joe. Or in between. Or in between on June 23rd, 1950. That's one where the the debris and the oil slick and some human remains were recovered, but the plane's wreckage has never been found. Clive has funded the uh, efforts to, they say recover, but he's not necessarily trying to recover it, I guess, is he? Just uh, find he it. Locate it. The location. Yeah, you got to find it first. Yeah. So they were you need looking. You're going to find the engines and the tail. Yeah, but he, they didn't look this year, but it sounds like it's still on his list. Uh, well, Clive, Clive has got some health issues, so, and I'm sure his priorities are not necessarily looking for that wreck. Well, he's only publishing six books a year. Well, he's, he's got a co-author <laughs> on that, too. That's the way to do it. Delegate. Yeah. Uh, Three and a half hours, guys. It's in Sandusky. Yep. That's, a, that's over there. Uh, but yeah, but uh, what? Well, I guess what I was getting out of it is is uh, Wilbanks could be back. Yeah, well, to go ask him. Yeah, because he's. Uh, it sounds like they they took this year off to go and find some more information, and unfortunately said uh, it made the search site bigger, not smaller, as you would hope. It says we're kind of on hold, kind of seeing if we can find out any more information. It seems like more we look, the larger the area gets, which is not normal. He is more optimistic about finding the Bohemian Richard. The was it Bonhomme Richard? Bonhomme Richard. Bottom Richard. Bonhomme Richard. Okay, yeah, that thing. He says that one we're closing in on. I think so. He's uh, seven. The seven speakers are going to be featured at the show. Uh, that's besides Will Banks and Hoyt. And then one of the last of our news articles. Oh darn it! I did it again. Boy, if I ever get Parkinson's, I'm going to be in trouble. I can't. I can I'm twitchy as it is now. The right kind of risky behavior may actually make you more attractive. They said uh, they, they, the results from the study pointed out two very important things. Taking physical risk, or as they called them, hunter-gatherer risk, were seen as attractive actions in both males and females. Taking modern risks, such as cheating on a test, not wearing a seatbelt, or opening potentially dangerous attachment, <laughs> attachments, were seen as unattractive in both males and females. So they said that for males, a rating of, of attractiveness from physical risk was higher than females, but any risk that inv involving our mother and culture was not classified as sexy. They said this may have to do with our instinctual way we pick potential partners. So they say, what kind of risk can make you more attractive? Biking, especially mountain biking, skateboarding, training animals, rock climbing, especially in the outdoors, playing sports. Swimming in the ocean, deeper the better, running a race, and the most important and the sexiest things in the world, snorkeling and scuba diving. See, that even rated higher than skydiving. Yep. Because you cross that line when you go from scuba diving to skydiving. You go from fun to why jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Yeah. So taking risks isn't exactly an evil thing to do, and we don't necessarily condone running out and taking dangerous risks, but you might be able to make yourself a little bit more like a badass by risking a little bodily harm. So that proves it. Scuba divers are the sexiest people on the planet. We knew that. Just look at us in our wetsuits. Yep. Well, actually, look at us in our lycra getting into our wetsuits, and you'd know. Yep. And then that goes right into our 
photos of the week, which happens to be... Hopefully no photos of me and my Lycra getting yeah. into my wetsuit. I don't know. It depends where you, if you were caught in camera when this went. So with with that, that it, they're saying and identifying the top 10 nude beaches in the world. And uh, I, I looked and, you know, Silver Beach wasn't on the list. That's Discordia Beach right there, though, isn't it? Discordia. <laughs> well, the fr- <clears throat> are they just showing pictures of the beaches, or no? There's there's people in the pictures. You know, you oh. know where the cook plant is, right? Yeah. If you're out there facing it, facing cook plant with your boat uh-huh. to the right, used to be a nude beach. Really? Now it's, oh yeah. Now it's a state park. Late sixties, early seventies. Was it intentionally a nude beach, or just happened to be a nude beach? All I know is back in the day when they put the uh, security cameras up. It was not unusual to, uh, depend on how well you knew the, the cards or if you maintained the equipment, that you would see uh, videos <laughs> of such activities. <laughs> I mean, they got infrared on that. It was interesting. <laughs> for, some, for some reason, the camera doesn't want to turn away from this one spot. <laughs> so they had uh, uh, Panama. They had Florida and the United States. They had France. They had Brazil. But you go all the way down to one of the last ones, which is in Greece, and they said that some of the most popular activities at the nude beach are water sports, including windsurfing and scuba diving. You notice they say water spouts, such as scuba diving? Well, that's because the intern that they wrote the article. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious why the number one item they showed, there's nobody there. There's, There's one picture where if they're naked, their skin is bleached so white in the bathing suit area, they might as well be wearing clothes. <laughs> and that was Vancouver. That one guy's certainly got a farmer tan. Yeah, he does. And he goes from extreme. He goes from wearing shorts that must go up to his nipples. And then we have a video of the week, which uh, this one's out of Florida, Diver's Den. They're holding a underwater pumpkin carving contest. And uh, it's, a, it's a good short little video. And they're talking about their first annual underwater cu- pumpkin carving. They said you can join. You just need to bring your pumpkin pre-carved. You cannot put marks on the inside. And for this one, Mac, which I thought was a little unusual, you don't have to be a diver. They are offering a Discover Scuba class where non-divers can use the shop's equipment with a $50 entry fee. They're going to have them watch a video and pass a three-part test where they clear a flooded mask, uh, taking the regulator out and putting it back on and controlling the inflator. And you will be able to participate in the contest. Well, if you're sitting in three foot of water, probably get away with it. Yeah, I I, I never seen anybody do that. Wonder what their liability is. They must have worked it out. I mean, it's, it's what can go wrong? Untrained divers with sharp knives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you, you probably must have to have your own policy for the for amputation. Uh, did you go to the second set, second page? Yeah, there are a few rules: thirty minute time limits. Yep, yep. You're not allowed to draw on a stencil prior to submission. They, they said they, they can bring a stencil underwater with them. Carvers are required to move the pumpkin guts before you enter the water. Judging for the competition will be arbitrary. Yeah, it's whatever the judge thinks looks cool. Or how much money you got. Yeah. Uh, well, that works too. Hey, yeah, if you buy a, a full BC and regulator from the shop before the, the dive, uh, that, I'm sure that helps your chances a little bit. Wouldn't hurt probably. Is that a joke? First stab at underwater carving? Uh, I think that was. So that does it for scuba in the news. Now, it's, it was, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but I did not get in the water, but I know that others did, and I am thoroughly jealous. Are you talking about underwater gear first? I didn't see anything Gear? There. Did I have anything in gear? 
You said potentially cool scuba, $300,000 underwater internet. Oh, did I put that in there? Okay. Yeah, let's go ahead and co- cover this. This is always good for uh, comments. Uh, federal money going to the underwater internet. I'm thinking I could take a router and wrap it in a little sandwich bag and put it down there. The National Science Foundation has awarded 300000 to the State University of New York at Buffalo to develop underwater internet or real-time video streaming in the internet of underwater things. A four-year project is not uh, aimed at Netflix uh, video streaming. The underwater sensor network will have applications of national security, border protection, anti-submarine warfare, environmental monitoring, tsunami detection, accurate weather forecasting, and in the oil and gas industry, among others. I still have exception to the comment. The prospect of an underwater internet has raised significant interest among the general public. You think that's true? No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think most people think the internet already works underwater. Hey, all I know is Al Gore took care of it. I'm glad of that. Yeah. Well, I'm always amazed because I can remember in the early days, uh, you know, from from being in the field, running radio waves over water has unusual effects. So it was not uncommon for cell companies to be to have problems along rivers. So the fact that we can be a mile out in Lake Michigan and get a good signal. I mean, in fact, I've got really good internet in the lake. Not in the lake, but out on the lake, I guess. A little bit more accurate. So they're looking at doing right now, it's at fairly slow speeds, but they're hoping to increase the speed. Now I want to know when they're doing the underwater internet, are they just looking at ways for sensors? I mean, how about distances? Are we going to see clusters and nodes every couple hundred yards out in the water or do they think they can go miles with these signals mm-hmm. we're developing technology to increase the ability to monitor the aquatic physical environment and to connect these underwater monitoring devices including video cameras and other sensors to the internet and we've seen other articles where they show different types of gear and, and hookups so i don't know if they're as close as they want to make us believe did you read the discussion questions at the end of it or comments? No, no. What, what are they saying? Planning ahead for global warming when New York and California are underwater. <laughs> <laughs> it's how they get useless useless college kids to apply for more useless degrees. It's already done in submarines, you stupid, wasteful asses. I like that one. <laughs> you can upload your photographs and images, movies in real time. Plus, you can communicate with anyone. Excuse me? I thought we already did that. It's It's interesting. I kept trying to figure out if that was a real mermaid or not, but I don't think so. Darn it. You saw the picture with it? No, I didn't. Off to the right of the, where it says awarded $300,000, right to the right, there's a picture. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, let me take a look. Let me go back. I closed that off. Uh, sorry about that. So what am I looking for? Where you had your article said the National Science Foundation has awarded. Uh-huh. Immediately to the right, see a guy with a guitar in the water? Yeah. That looks like a mermaid with no head. Well, she's got a head there. It's hard to see. Yeah, she's got that big, I, wide mask. I tried to click on it. I just couldn't see anything. Yeah, yeah, you can see her. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it just the, the the angle. Yeah, she's got a pretty good weight belt going on there. The photo this in this photo provided by the Florida Keys Bureau NASA participants Nancy Bartz, Samantha Langslide, and Fernando Bart, Barta pretend to play a mock musical instrument and enjoy Lower Keys Underwater Music Festival. Uh-huh. Just clicking around, I just noticed something that was interesting, though. What's that? A new case of Albola in New York City. In New York. New York City. How, that that can't go wrong. That's right. I'm just curious. Where the hell did that come from? Okay. I guarantee you, though, that if we're underwater in our suit, we won't catch it. Think Not so? if we're underwater in our suits. Yeah. That's what I said. So underwater is the place to be. 
So you could get. We were there today. We should be able to actually get a reduction in our health insurance because of it. So, do you got some diving in? Something underwater? Yeah, we got some climbing underwater today. Well, how'd it go? The dive was great. Uh, it was after the dive that we had a little problem. Uh oh. What, what was the problem? Um, was 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 there? It had something to do with uh, dispersing well, you, the. You, uh, do you have audio? Let me see. Uh, let me see if I can I can play it. and You guys can hear. Hold on. Was that what you're referring to, Jim? Yeah, yeah. Did you hear that, Mr. Mac? I'm sorry. What? Did you hear what Darren was playing? <laughs> no. Oh, one more time. Okay, we'll have to do this. No, not really. No, not really. Oh, right, right. Here, I don't want this Coke. You take the Coke. Hey, Mac, is that an old Coke or is it a St. Joe Coke? Well, let me look at the bottom of it. Oh, yeah, it's an old one. Holy cow, it's a Christmas Coke. I'm not going to give that one away. (laughs) So is there something significant about Christmas Coke? I don't know. I don't have one. (laughs) So what was your comment again? That's all right. Go ahead, Mac. Tell them about Christmas Cokes. No, I mean, what was the, I didn't. You guys did the, the movie, the song Indian Giver, Indian Giver. Oh, I couldn't hear that. I have to turn up your hearing aid. Well, I turned up the volume and it was really garbled. So, now I started out with the volume. Yeah, Thanks. Indian oh. Giver. You know that, that picture of Santa Claus drinking a Coca Cola? Yeah. Okay, that's from the 20s, 1920s. Mm-hmm. All right. The Coke, Coke, Christmas Coke on it is dated December 25th, 1923, representative of that Norman Rockwell. That's a Christmas Coke. My understanding, I, it's been a while since I've reviewed it, but I thought it was for three years they made an addition called like the Christmas Coke to represent that. Well, the one of the bottles I almost gave to Jim today before I cleaned it off and said, wait a minute, this is a Christmas Coke. He ain't getting that one. He told me I could have it, but then he looked at it and decided, no, he wasn't going to give it away. He didn't have in his possession yet, so I didn't. Right, know. right. It had not changed hands. <laughs> it's a subject of technicality. Well, that and the knife in my other hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. He gave me enough other bottles. I'll let him keep this one. So, of course, today, today, I hit a sweet spot and picked up over 24 bottles today. 24 bottles. Why don't you describe what that process is like? So you, you see well, something sticking out of the it, sand? It, it, it was an interesting day. We, we were diving an area near a bridge that goes over the river. And the guys had found a, like a bicycle, almost like a tricycle, but it's more like a scooter-type tricycle. And they wanted to recover that. So as we're getting in the water, you know, the first thing I did was I was getting in the water. I was all geared up. I had laid down my uh, – I had my float with me, my inner tube, and I had a big um, – well, I call it a river stick, but it's like a, what would you call it, Mac? Like a, pry, a pickaxe? Yeah, like a pickaxe. Yeah, like a pickaxe that you would use for digging out a stump or something, except this is smaller. It's not, you know, it's hand size versus uh, shovel size, a big one. So it's mm-hmm. a smaller one. So I had that on the tied to the line as, on my float and was using it as an anchor. So I dropped that in the water and Went down to grab it, get ready to start drifting off. As soon as I hit the bottom, there's a bottle right in front of me. So we pick that one up. We get in the water and start swimming around, four of us now. And I came across the uh, trike, so I tied the float off to that, got a hold of the other guys, let them know we had found it, and then drug that over to shore. And then came back and was going to try to catch up to Mac because he had headed upstream. And you never want to be downstream of Mac. 
it's just a silt cloud when you're downstream of Mac. So we were trying to go under the bridge and head upstream, and I saw something that caught my eye. I wasn't quite sure what it was sticking out of the sand, but it was an unusual shape, and it was not a piece of wood. So I dug my pick into the sand near it and started fanning around it and fanned it out. And this turned out to be the base of an old pedestal chair, like an office chair that had, you know, four legs on it and came up, would have a, a pivot and a rocking, but the seat was going off of it. So I pushed that off to the side, and as I was digging in that, I saw a bottle. So I started fanning that bottle, and as I'm fanning the first bottle, a second bottle appears. So I start fanning the second bottle, and a third bottle appears. And I had a severe case of ADD, attention deficit disorder. I kept forgetting about the first bottle that I was working on. So I ended up, I ended up working a three-foot by three-foot section under the bridge in the river and came up with about 20 bottles right out of that one hole. Now, what he's failing to tell you, though, is he is creating, creating <clears throat> intense discomfort among his other dive buddies. Why is that? You might ask, why is that? Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Because we're all together, and we're on the other side of the freaking river looking over at this flag that's not moving because it's tied off on the bottom. So well, we, go I was on right the bridge, we go on the bridge to look down to see if he's still got bubbles coming up. We figure, well, he's got bubbles, so he's not dead. <laughs> yeah. And then the other item is like, what the hell? He's got 130 coupons. Everybody else is diving 80s. No wonder he's still the hell over there. Ah. Well, I had one hour of bottom time on the final dive. I mean, we were up and down, you know, moving the stuff around. So when I finally went down and found this hole, I had a solid hour just working this three foot by three foot. Actually, there was another one next to it that was about three foot by three foot also. I worked two holes side by side. I'd hit one, then bounce over and fan the other while the first one settled out. Then I'd come back over and fan the first one, pick up a few bottles, go fan the second one. I had two three foot by three foot holes, about two feet in between them. And I pulled about 20, 24, 25 of the 27 or 28 bottles I picked up today out of those two holes. Nice. And it was an hour solid before I came back to the surface to get my lift bag, my goodie bag and my lift bag. I just had them all piled up in a big pile. Then I went down and put them in the lift bag, and there wasn't enough room to put them all in the, lift, in the goodie bag and tied a lift bag to it and floated that up and then had a metal pot that I found, an agate pot, and piled half a dozen bottles in that and carried that back. You now have a pot to my fish in. Huh? I said, you now have a pot to piss in. I have a pot to piss in. Unfortunately, it has a leak in it, so. Yeah. I'd have stayed longer, but I, I figured the guys were, you know, might be looking for me. <laughs> I mean, that was easy to find. I was right there by the. We really weren't looking to find. We were thinking about taking our M80s, putting a little bit of uh, wax on them and lighting them to see if it'd get his attention. You knew where I was. Well, that's what we said. We, we saw the, the anchor. We figured he's found the glory hole. I found the glory hole. 24 bottles and, you know, two three-by-three holes. So needless and to about say, 12 had, of them, he had about, a good time today. About 12 of them were keepers uh, embossed. Or, the yeah, yeah. if you go to the club site, on the right-hand side is the white agate pot. Everything below and to the right is what I found today, minus about four or five that I threw back as I was cleaning them up because they were obviously nothing good, so I just tossed them back in the river. You know, they weren't worth a, once I got them to the surface and cleaned them up, they weren't worth a second look. And that's a Facebook site for the dive club, not the club club site yet. So it was a good day. I got cold. That's why I finally had to quit. 
I still had uh, about 1,100 pounds in that 120, so I could have stayed for another half hour or more easy. So, so Mac, you found the Coke bottle. How, how many bottles did you find? Uh, well, I got a couple of medicines. I got another nice hutchie, an unusual hutchie. Hutchie. Uh, yeah, he, he gets a hutchie. hutchie. I find 24 bottles and not a single hutchie. And I got some medicines. I got a really nice A&P one that's embossed about four different lines. And that's from New Jersey. Uh, Jersey? Yeah. I, I got four that I considered to be very nice keepers, including, uh, well, I make that five. There's a baby bottle that was embossed that was really nice. And I gave the tools I found to, to uh, Ken. They were actually like that one large prod in the middle. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of it's a, it's a It's a nice tool, but once you start getting the crap off of it, it's still usable. Uh, Ken found that nice jug, except it had that one cutout, which is inside the jug. Uh, Larry got some nice ones. Uh, actually, Jim got two nice milks that if he hadn't been looking, might have disappeared. No, very I was unusual. watching them. Yeah, I had very yeah, unusual just, because they're not like normal milk bottles. They're almost like straight with a little bit of curve in them. Yeah, just to the right of the white pot, you'll find the milk. One of the milks. Right, highly embossed. Very nice bottle. Yeah, nice. that was a pretty one. That was a pretty we, one. We found a lot of the creameries. It's not in my pictures, but we all found creams and gave those to, to Jake from Maribeth. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, did you find the ceramic one, or was that Larry? Yeah. No, I found that, too. I gave yeah, that to Yeah, a ceramic Maribeth. one, which was unusual. You don't normally find uh, the ponds and stuff, but that one was, was really unusual. When you say ceramic, what type of ceramic? It, it was more like uh, a clay like with a glaze on it. Yeah, more like a, a small crock than a jar. Yeah. Not glass, but more like a crock than mm-hmm. a... Pottery, pottery versus glass. Yeah, that's to, the one that's right underneath the Coke. And if you're looking at the photo, it's on the far left-hand side of my pile, which is everything below and to the right of the white pot. Now, now, in my opinion, it seems like crock or pottery would be older than glass in many cases. Would you say that, or well, yeah, in many in China and China can be almost any age. Right, but I mean, just it's like. There, I mean, there was overlap, and I mean, you could still even get crocked today, but before... Well, I think the pictures we found that were in Chinese, I thought those were pretty unique. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something about Ming on it, but I couldn't... I thought yeah. they were talking about Flash Gordon, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Yeah, that, the one base was not... I mean, it was intact, but you couldn't read it past that Ming part. Yeah, all, I, I, you know, all that was funny characters on it. When I saw Made in China, I just let it go. <laughs> Now, uh, we had the Mud Club meeting this week, and we did the show and tell. And those are some bo- nice bottles that were being passed around there. Yes, they were. There were some nice cobalt blue, uh, old, old... Bromos uh, Bromos bottles, yeah. Various sizes. Yeah, and they were all... But but they were all kind of like, I would call them the same skew. They were the like the same product, just different representations and ages. And like, the, the embossing was different in the sizing mm-hmm. and the depth of the letters. Yeah. Well, it looked like one of them was probably a very early version of what I would almost call a twist twist top, yeah. where, where you'd had a top, and instead of it being threaded, it was just like a little catch that you, know, you would mm-hmm. turn, and then you'd be able to lift the lid off. And then the other ones were, were uh, even an older version. I don't know. Would, they, would those have been cork? I believe they would have been. Yeah. The other one I liked was the one that uh, Ken got, which was the, uh, I think it was a root beer, but it was yep. the it was a Hires, elixir. Hires elixir. Yeah. So that would have been about the time, because Coca-Cola started the same way. It was more of a pharmaceutical product than a uh, beverage. Yeah, when you put cocaine in it. I mean, Coke in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And then that that uh, chocolated milk bottle I thought was nice. That was mm-hmm. that was one of my unusual ones. Yeah, because I don't think I've ever seen a glass chocolated milk. I, that I hadn't either. That, that's a different one. I got that on my shelf actually. Yeah, I, and I would like to know something about the history of that. At what point did it just become? Oh, that's chocolate milk. I mean, that that seemed to be something special. Like uh, we're going to take and manually add chocolate. Jim, was that yours or Larry's or Ken's? I had one looking at the bottom. It was very old today. I can't remember which one that was. You guys are talking about Was that another root beer one or something like that? Oh, yeah. I found a 1949 Hires root beer. That's it, which was really nice. That's a nice one. Yeah. Well, Mar- yeah. Mary Beth had, was she the one who had, it was like an octagon but oblong? And that had like a yeah, palmo mark in the bottom? Yeah, yeah, that was a very nice one, too. Yeah. That was upstream. That's way up by where they launched the kayaks. Yeah. That, 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 was a, that seemed to be a multi-parted pieced bottle. Mm-hmm. So fairly sophisticated. You'd like to know what was in it. Yeah, yeah it was a, a molded, you know, like a blown mold. And then it had a separate uh, ring put on the top of it, a ceiling ring. Yeah. So that, somebody spent some time to go and make all those parts and then fuse them together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I make, thought we, we collected last dive or dive before last. We even brought the broken tops up because of the uniqueness of the top, and some of them had corks on them. Yeah, uh, some and of then, those might even be available to be looked at on Treasure Site. I think on the Club Club. Yeah, site. on the Mud Club site. Yeah, I think if you blew it up, you might see the broken ones. Yeah, because those those had corks on them still. Yeah, well, there's you know, a, I had a medicine with a cork in it today, and it didn't come up, so it must have fallen out of the. Just just leaving that for out. somebody else to find. Well, I'm going to go back and look for it Saturday. Yeah, I, I might have I'll, to I'll pick get it up tomorrow for them, though maybe. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I think I might have to get my gear out Saturday. I'm I'm looking through. I've got something Friday night, but I think I am due, and I can convince the wife that I should go Saturday. I'm just hoping I could fit in the dry suit. Yeah, it was comfortable in a wetsuit. No, I mean I'm so, hoping I can fit into the dry suit. <laughs> It's like I haven't been, I've just been vegetating at desks for like the last three months, and I can tell. It was comfortable except for after about an hour and a half. So I'll have to look at total bottom time for the dives today with, you know, coming to the surface a few times. But So, Mac, you going to go tomorrow? If you, you want to go tomorrow, I can still go tomorrow. I'm thinking about doing a high noon when I got appointments in the morning, but I should be able to make it. I'm thinking about going on the hospital side and going back into the bridge like we used to. Yeah. And then diving in that area. You know, downstream from that, they used to have a, a permanent barge out there. Used to have a Christmas tree on it. They they still yeah. do that. I don't see the barge anymore. No, but they they uh, they bring it in every year now. Oh, I, I saw some. Yeah, some last pilings. year they had the Christmas tree out there. I saw some pilings there. So yeah, they may just leave the anchorage out there and just bring it back. I don't know, or maybe they pull it up when they bring the barge in. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say so. Let's see. Do we have anything else? Uh, if you're not getting wet, what's your excuse? <laughs> well, right now it's because... Water's it, not hard yet. It's getting... It's, it's, it's going to get hard. But I think a lot of people, I, I hear them talking like it's already too cold. It is getting a little nippy. But if you want to dive all year round, you got to keep diving. I mean, you just can't do like I've done and take this extended break. Because I'm, I'm nervous about getting back in, even with a dry suit. Because it's much easier to go in every other week and just adjust one thing at a time than to go in after two or three months and have to re-gear and everything. Because I'm afraid I don't have enough to keep warm. I, in fact, I need to. 
gosh, if I'm going to go, I need to get new gloves. My, my gloves are just completely shredded. And nobody carries the three-finger gloves anymore. Uh, they've got some new ones at Wolf's. Oh, good. Uh, they got double seals on them. Ooh. Uh, he's, he's got, Larry had a set, actually two, he's got two different pair of five and seven mills, uh, like lobster claws. Now, has anybody ever tried to do anything preemptive? Like, I know I'm going to tear up the gloves. Is there something I can do when they're brand new, like, you know, coat them and something? I reinforce a lot of my fingertips with marine goop. And then when I start getting them worn, I start putting a layer on that because it's ugly looking, but it sure saves your gloves. Yeah, I don't care if they're ugly or not. But uh, where I've been noticing that I'm going through gloves is in the inside between the, the glove and the first finger. Right there, I'll usually have a hole start. I reinforce that with the goop, marine goop. It's cheap, works good, and sets really fast. And I have a feeling it's from the putting on and taking off of the gloves. You know, that I'm just stretching them, and that just happens to be a weak point. I wonder if you can do something like, you know, blow air into them like you do when you're putting a bead in a tire. <laughs> Is that one way to, to get gloves on? Yeah, or, you know, put a little uh, shampoo in there, yeah. baby shampoo. Yeah, I may have to try that. Now, baby shampoo works real well. Just slide your hand right in it. But I think that's got to be one of my next purchases, is uh, especially for river diving, is a, is a new pair of gloves. Cheap to buy for the first couple of dives of the year. Then yeah. you use it during the summer and get a new one for the fall again. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I agree. I agree. So it's it's time. I'm going to have to go get my, my tanks all put together. Well, let's see. Do we have anything? You can always follow us on Twitter, at ScoobObsessed. And i got to do some more posts. I've been a little lax traveling all over the world. It's been hard to get back into doing it, so i got to do that some more. We're on Facebook.com forward slash ScoobObsessed. Also, our website, which is really getting old, and I need to get onto it, but it's becoming a daunting task. I've been building a lot of websites for other people, and I need to get back on that one. So uh, keep an eye out. When that changes, that's going to change in a big way. And I also have some other projects that have been waiting, and uh, I'll probably recruit Mac and Jim and some others to help me with them, but we've got some stuff coming up here. So a lot of good things getting ready to happen. Uh, but diving, that comes first. So are we ready for that time of the show? I guess. <laughs> if if you have to. Let's see if I can find where my notes are. And I've got some editing to do tonight. When I played that uh, that clip for Mac, I screwed up the audio, so I've got some piecing together to do. So here we go for the joke. And this one comes from Rod in New Zealand. Thank you for listening. And also, uh, I can, kind of a quick story before we get into joke. Uh Mac, who's that? Who's that new dive member? Is his name John? Yes, John. So I'm. I'm. We're. We had a new member in the Mud Club who I guess has gone uh, diving with on your boat, Jim, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been out with me, Jim. And uh, so you know, we we do our dive club meeting, and after the dive club meeting, which the meetings at a local university here in town, and then we go to a pizza place downtown, which is it's not nothing much to look at, but when they're on and they're making a good pizza, that is a really good pizza. So it's a good place to go. And I'm sitting next to this guy, and he looks at me. He goes, I recognize your voice. You're on that podcast, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm on the podcast. And uh, he, he mentioned that he was a fan and a listener, and that's how he found the Mud Club. And at that moment, I'm thinking, I don't have anything to say to this guy because he knows a thousand times more about me. I mean, I don't, I don't have any other stories. They all get spilled out on the air. So I hope I wasn't, uh, I wasn't too dead of a conversation, but I just, I didn't even know what to say. It's, it's, 
It's usually the opposite. You know, everybody I know who I go diving with, they never listen to the program. Uh, well, he didn't mention me, so you must have come across really good. <laughs> I I would have to. Maybe, maybe he doesn't re- doesn't associate you with you. I mean, did he, did he mention it, Jim, to you that he listened to the show? No. Yeah, that's how you discovered the club. He said. Mm. Yeah, so I was sitting next to him. So that was nice. He said he enjoyed the show and enjoyed listening to it. So a shout out to John and glad that he's hanging around with the club and we'll get some dives in. And he was new. He had just started diving. He said he went to uh, was it Curico or someplace down south the first time and got certified then he got back up in michigan not too far from us and said decided that he needed to get some diving in and somehow by listening to podcast put two and two together and met up so nice to meet john and hope we see some more yeah i had him out on the boat once or twice and hopefully he'll get out with us some more yeah see so that's you gotta do everybody has to move to southwest michigan you can go diving with us and we'll get out all sorts of fun stuff to do but okay so here we go back to the joke Oh, crap. Now, I got, now I'm all off. So, again, this is from uh, Rod in New Zealand. Hello, honey. Is Mommy there? No, she's upstairs in the bedroom with Uncle Jim after a brief pause. But, darling, you don't have an Uncle Jim. Yes, I do. He comes around to see Mommy whenever you go diving. Okay, what I want you to do is run upstairs, knock on the bedroom door, and say, Daddy's car just drove in the driveway. Okay, Daddy, just wait a minute. A few minutes later, a little girl returns the phone. Okay, Daddy, I did it. And what happened, darling, he asks. Well, Mommy jumped out of bed with no clothes on and ran around the room screaming. Then she tripped on a rug, fell, and hit her head, and isn't moving anymore. Oh, my God. And what did Uncle Jim do? Well, he jumped out of bed with no clothes on either and jumped out the window into the swimming pool. But I guess he didn't know you drained all the water out last week, and he isn't moving either. I, th- I think he's dead. After a long pause, swimming pool? Is this 868-9088? See, I like it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, see, so so that's why we call it the bad scuba trip. And until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And don't jump in any swimming pools that don't have water in them. Well, they're not doing the, the call recording is ended. And don't be an Indian giver. Okay, now let's the stop button. Right there. There it is. Maybe? No? There it is.